And that's, that is my little time for exhorting, touching the little, little things there. All right, are you ready for our second story from the altars of God? Everybody say, yes, I am. Excellent, excellent. Our second story is of King David and the altar that he built on the threshing floor of Arana, who was possibly and probably the king of Jerusalem before David took the city. And Arana was a Jebusite, and he lived... Uh, in what would be called Jerusalem, and at that time it was Jebus, uh, and that's why they called them Jebusites. Okay, so David builds an altar there, and it's one of the most important altars in the Bible, and we're going to learn about it this morning. I want to kind of warn you, the circumstances surrounding David's building, building of the altar on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, they present some complex challenges for anyone who is trying to walk with God. So I'm assuming all of you are endeavoring to have a walk with God. What you're going to hear this morning about David's altar presents some challenges, and there's some complexities to it, and I can't take all morning to deal with all those complexities. But if you read the two sections of Scripture that deal with this, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. There are some unusual things that took place, but we're going to try to take the most important three things and bring them out for you today. Now, <clears throat> the story of David erecting the altar on the threshing floor um, is told from a spiritual perspective in 2 Samuel 24 by the prophet Samuel. And then it's also told strictly from a historic perspective in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to borrow a little bit of the narrative from both of those stories, from the spiritual perspective, from the historic perspective, to present this narrative to you today. So Samuel's account, which was from a spiritual perspective, of the, the, the circumstances that led to David's building the altar, begins... At the opening stage begins by saying, God's anger was once again kindled against Israel. So Israel, by that time, had gotten into a habit of rebelling against God and backsliding on a somewhat semi-regular basis. And so once again, they were in one of those states of apostasy and rebellion and falling away from God. And so Samuel's account begins saying, God's anger was kindled once again against Israel. Now the Chronicles, which is strictly a historic account, from the view of, of history, opens up the story by saying, Then Satan stood up against Israel and incited King David to number or take a census of Israel. So the the one says God's anger was kindled against Israel. The other account, Satan moved and incited King David to take a census of Israel, which was a great sin, and you're going to find out about it and why it was. So basically, the context of this story rests upon a very 
critical principle that's at work today in our own nation, and you'll recognize it. So the way I want to consolidate the context of this story is by simply saying this. When God's people backslide, take their lives out from under His grace, then immediately Satan gains access to our leaders and entices them to sin against God and lead the nation into judgment. That is an absolute principle, universal principle. When God's people backslide, take their lives out from underneath His grace, Satan gains access to our leaders, enticing them to sin against God and expose the nation to judgment. Now here's the story of David and what happened. I'm going to begin reading a section of Scripture in a few moments, but I'll give you some of these details leading up to it. David initiates what amounts to a military census, an analysis of the military strength of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is divided into two subsets, Israel, the ten tribes to the north, Judah, two tribes to the south. Those are the twelve tribes of Israel. And David initiates a census. He says, I want a census taken and I want to know how many men do we have capable of going out to war. Now his general Joab begs him, don't do this. Don't sin against God. Don't take a census of the nation. Don't go out and try to calculate how many men we have or what our military strength is. It's a sin against God. But David won't listen and he insists upon it. And so for the next several months, Joab and his men go out, they take this census, and they come back, and they report to David the specific number of how many soldiers are in Israel, how many are in Judah. Now, David's census is a sin against God. And I hope that piques your interest because I'm going to share with you why it it was a sin against God. But just accept the fact that David's census is a sin against God whose anger is already kindled towards the backslidden people of Israel. So when David takes the census, God speaks to the prophet Gad. And he tells Gad, go to David and present him three judgments. He gets to pick which one is going to fall upon Israel. Three years of famine, three months of destruction at the hand of your enemies without any deliverance from God, or three days of the plague of pestilence from the angel of the Lord. David chooses the pestilence. He says, I'd rather fall into the hands of God because God has a capacity to be merciful for those three days and let the plague go through the land, then fall into the hands of the enemy who will have, certainly won't let up and have no mercy towards us. And so immediately, the angel of the Lord goes up and down Israel and releases a pestilence upon the land. After 70,000 people die, and the angel comes down and reaches the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem and is about to destroy Jerusalem, God's heart is moved with sorrow over the destruction that is crying out to him. And so God does something amazing. 
God lets David see the angel with his sword drawn over Jerusalem. God doesn't just jump in and say, okay, enough, stop. What does he do? He opens the eyes of David, whose sin brought this judgment. And he sees the angel about to strike, and he cries out to God. And so David cries out to God that God will make it stop and, and bring an end to the destruction. And God speaks to the angel. He doesn't speak to David. Now, God has, has a history of speaking to David. They, they used to speak all the time. But at this point, David's in sin. God won't talk to him. So God talks to the angel. And he says to the angel, tell David to build an altar on the threshing floor of Arana. That's where the angel was standing. The angel was standing on the threshing floor of Arana, the king of Jebus, or Jerusalem, and God opens David's eyes and he sees the angel standing there. And so God says, tell the angel to tell David to build an altar. Now the angel of God, he's not God, he's an angel. The angel won't even talk to David directly. The angel goes to Gad the prophet and he tells Gad the prophet, go tell King David that God commands him to build an altar where he sees that angel standing on the threshing floor. Interesting story, isn't it? I've never heard that. Yeah, well, it's going to get even better. Praise the Lord. So, um, let's pick up this story, and I'm going to read in Samuel's account, chapter 24. I'm going to begin at verse 18. That day Gad came to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So David went up to do what the Lord had commanded him. When Arana saw the king and his men coming forward to him, he came and bowed before the king with his face to the ground, saying, Why have you, why have you come, my lord the king? Arana asked. David replied, I've come to buy your threshing floor and to build an altar to the Lord there so that he will stop the plague. Arana says, take it, my Lord, the king, and use it as you wish, Arana said to David. Here, here are oxen for the burnt offering for you to offer to the Lord. And here you can use the boards of the threshing floor and the yokes of wood of the oxen to build a fire on the altar. And I will give it all to you, your majesty, and may the Lord your God accept your sacrifice. Wow, so gracious. But King David replied to Arana, no, I insist on buying it, for I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have cost me nothing. So David paid him 50 pieces of silver for the threshing floor and the oxen. David built an altar there to the Lord and he sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the Lord answered his prayer for the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. And that's the story of the altar on the threshing floor of Arana. But now let's dig into this kind of complex story a little bit. 
I have three points I want to bring out to you. And the first is that this was an altar of repentance. This was specifically an altar built to repent before God, meant to stop the consequences of sin from spreading. Have you ever gotten yourself into a habit, a downward spiral of sin? You could see the consequences around you breaking out, strife in your household, losses in your business, perhaps sickness in your body. But you're caught in this, this down the hill tumble that you're taking and you wish you could find a way to stop it, to put the brakes on. The altar of repentance is the only way to stop the downward consequences of sin once we have allowed them to get out of the box and begin to spread. So the first great lesson here to learn is this. Seeking repentance is impossible without a formal approach to God himself. Did you hear that? It is impossible to repent to God without formally, formally approaching him directly. Now you might think, well, that, that's pretty obvious. If you want God to forgive you, you must go to God. Well, it's not as obvious as you think because most people simply use remorse, regret, and sorrow felt in their heart and feel that's repentance. But Remorse, regret, and sorrow are not enough. God requires direct dialogue. You've not repented of anything until you have dialogued directly with God at the altar of repentance about the matter. This brings up a problem that exists just with people because of human nature. Too many people Assume that God is willing to accept heart reading. God can read our heart, right? God is willing to accept heart reading in place of relationship. Well, that doesn't work in marriage, does it? Of course not. Try that with your spouse. Your spouse wants relationship. You can't have a, well, I love you in my heart, I care about you in my heart, and uh, you, you should just see it in my actions. It's not enough for your spouse, and it's not enough for God. This was not the first time Israel would have <clears throat> tried that attempt, expecting God to have mercy, but not wanting to deal with him directly. Because the very first time when Israel rebelled and sinned against God, was when God met them on the top of Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. And he invited them, I want to come down and talk with you. And they said, no, no, no. We don't want to have a relationship. Just give us your rules and we'll follow them. So when, when Israel first attempted to get God to settle uh, for a relationship without fellowship, and that's what most people have. Oh, I've got a relationship with God, but I've got no fellowship with God. If you've got no fellowship with God, you've got no relationship with God. Are you listening? There are millions of people in churches and walking around. A lot of Christians that have defected and left church, and they're going through their days, weeks, months, years, 
no real communion, no fellowship. Understand, fellowship with God is not what you imagine in your mind, it's what you actually have. And so if there's no obedience to God, there's not, God's not, if God doesn't say, Giselle and I are fellowshipping, then Giselle and God aren't fellowshipping. If Giselle says, oh yeah, God and I are fellowshipping, but God doesn't agree, you're not having fellowship with God. So Israel tried to have relationship with God without fellowship. You understand what I'm saying to you? It doesn't work. And you know what it resulted in? God gave them the law. They got the law instead of relationship with God. In Isaiah chapter 1, there's a section of scripture that really is poignant and brings this concept out. God says to Israel, this is one of the times they were backslidden. He opens up, come, hear, hear the call, come, come, let us consider your options, says the Lord. Though your sins have stained you like the color red, you can become white like snow. Though they are as easy to see as the color scarlet, you could become white like wool. If you have a willing attitude and obey, then you will again eat the good crops of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Know for certain that the Lord has spoken this. When I read that, know for certain that the Lord has spoken this, I hear God saying, this is for you all the time. This is what God says. But notice how he deals with Israel on the subject of their failings and of their sins. He says, come, let's discuss this. Let's talk. And so God invites us into direct communication. That's what an altar is. Now, since God is redemptive, let's start at that point. God, in his essence, is redemptive. He created the world to have fellowship with us. The failure of sin occurred, but God, never to be overturned and overthrown, his purpose is going to prevail. He's going to have that fellowship. He's redemptive. So since God is redemptive, listen carefully. He wants to discuss the issues surrounding your failures and your sins with you directly because he's redemptive. He doesn't want to manage you with laws. He wants to discuss and talk with you. He wants you in a learning relationship with him as his child. And now specifically, when we have failed in a matter involving a stewardship that God has given to us, the sin can only be dealt with by going back to the origin of our stewardship, which is our relationship with God. So, trying to straighten out errors when God has given you a stewardship. By the way, if you're a mother, you have a stewardship. If you're a father, you have a stewardship. Uh, whatever God has put under your hand. If God owns me, he owns everything that he's put under my hand. And so, I am a, not an owner, but a steward of what God has given me. Do you understand this? So when our sin is directly a sin against the stewardship, how we're managing what God has given us, the only way you can deal with that sin is you must go back to the origin of the stewardship. 
You can't deal with the sin by trying to explain it away by the immediate circumstances. Oh, I had to do this because this was the circumstances. Oh, I had to act that way because this is the situation. See, when you're a steward, God places you under his authority, which means he doesn't accept as an excuse that the circumstances had more power over you than his authority. Do you understand? He won't accept that. It's not acceptable to him. So when you sin against your stewardship, you must go to God because only God can reset, which is what he wants to do, reset that stewardship, wipe out the stain of sin. He said to Israel, he said, your sins have made you like someone dumped a bucket of red paint over you, but come to me. Let's talk. Let me deal with you. And that, all that red will be gone. Praise the Lord. So we must go back to where God first assigned us our commission. You know, it's like trying to, it's like trying to straighten out a bent sword that has fallen into the sand, has fallen into the dirt, and trying to straighten out that bend where it sits in the sand. It's impossible. You must take the sword back to the anvil that forged it. You can't just let it set in the sand and step on it and try to bend. It's not going to work. And that's what we try to do with our lives. In the immediate setting of the circumstance of our sin of stewardship, we're trying to, against the circumstances, we're trying to deal with and rectify what is bent and what has failed in our life. And it can't get there. It won't work. It never works. God is calling you back to the source of your stewardship. Now, in the case of David's sin, here's why I've said everything that I've said about, about this repentance and the sin and the responsibility and stewardship. In David's case, he numbers Israel, goes out, takes the census. I don't know if you've figured out why that was a sin, but it was no coincidence, it was no coincidence, by the way, that David was commanded by God to build the altar on the threshing floor of Arana. The reason is Arana's threshing floor sat right on the spot where a thousand years earlier Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac. And it was sitting on the same spot where a thousand years later the Lamb of God would be crucified. He brought David to the spot where the covenant his covenant with us was initiated and where it was authorized. And so God is always bringing us back to our covenant relationship. It's the only place where the plague can stop, where the errors can be expunged, the sin can be removed, and we can be reset and given a rebound. Somebody say, praise the Lord. So the altar of repentance... We'll just sum this up and then go to the second point. The altar of repentance always corrects our course by taking us back to the origin of our relationship with God. That's why walking around with regret and remorse and expecting God to read your heart is a waste of time. God's not interested in your remorse, your regret. None of those things move him. What moves him is when you go back and acknowledge, Lord, I'm yours, bought by the blood. I come before you. My emotions are screaming. 
you know, like darkness being drawn into the light, but here I am. And praise the Lord. The second thing that I want to bring out to you, why did David pay for his offering? Arana offered it free. The oxen are free. The threshing floor, free. You're offering to God's pay for I give it to you. I want you to succeed. I want this prayer, this offering you're going to make to God to succeed. I want to give you this gift. But he refused to receive it from Arana as a free gift. Why is that? Well, Matthew 22, Jesus said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And in Proverbs 3 and 9, it says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Some people are always trying to serve God as cheaply as possible. They don't understand that God is worthy of our best. Worship is about honor, not affordability. It's about honor. And the genuineness of your worship is measured by what is valuable to you that you are offering up to God. Listen, God shouldn't be worshiped with our availability and our leftovers and our convenience. Worship shouldn't be affordable. It should be sacrificial. And perhaps one of the reasons why we don't have more of the direct presence and the awesome power of God manifesting is in our worship, we don't or we seldom move beyond what is affordable, what is convenient, into what is really sacrificial. Does that make sense to you? You know, whether it's your heart or your schedule, your time, or your material possessions, give God what's precious to you, not what's discardable. God wouldn't let them, when they were doing animal sacrifices, get that three-legged goat, you know, the turtle dove that was blind in one eye. The animals you're going to destroy and get rid of anyway and take them and offer them to God. David said, I will not offer to God what costs me nothing. If my worship to God, my obedience to God, isn't my best and it isn't costing me something, if I'm not having to sacrifice for what I'm doing, well, let me put it to you like this. The value of our worship is measured by the value of what we are offering up to us. Because God sees that value being surrendered to him. So, let me go back and, uh, well, actually, we'll just go forward. It's, we'll deal with this in the third point. Here's the third point. You're probably wondering, what's wrong with taking a census? Come on, let me see your hands. Anybody wonder, what the heck's wrong with taking a census? I don't see anything wrong with it. What's God, what kind of problem does God have with taking a census? David's the king. Well, hold on. Let me, let, let's see if I answer your question. God owned Israel. Let's start there. 
God's the owner of Israel. His ownership of Israel explains the many times that he intervened with great acts of deliverance when the people repented and cried out to him when they were being threatened by their enemies. You don't see that happening for other nations, only for Israel. God is intervening throughout their history when they would come to him as his possession, as his people, and repent to him. God would come supernaturally, deal with their enemies. So you could see that God acted as the owner of Israel. He believed he owned Israel, and indeed he did. Where did Isaac come from? God provided him. Where did Israel come from? Isaac. God created Israel. It was his. Can you say amen? In those days, these days where David is king of Israel, in those days only the owner of a nation had the right to take an inventory of its possessions. Imagine if some other king came trotting across your border and you're the king of a nation and they said, give me an, give an account. I want to know how, many, how much wealth you have. I want to know what your resources are. I want to know what you've got to defend yourself in case I decide I want to invade you. Nobody had the right to take an inventory of the nation except the person that owned the nation. Does that under, you understand that? Does that make some sense to you? Praise the Lord. So, in those days, only the owner. Now, let, let me pause and, and give a little side note because when I saw this and thought about it, I began to think about God's relationship to the world in general, how he relates to nations and why there's millions and millions and millions of, of prayers, quote-unquote, lying around on the ground that have never gotten off the ground and have never been heard and have never been answered. And you wonder, well, if, if the proof of God is that he answers every prayer that people just you know, toss up, then there is no God, obviously. But we know that there is a God. And yet there's these millions throughout history of prayers that are just left out there. Why is that? And the answer is this. It has to do with ownership. The relationship God has with the earth is with what he owns and who he owns. At that time, he owned Israel. God's relationship with mankind is as a creator-redeemer, not as a divine social worker that's just waiting to insert himself wherever trouble breaks out. You see, in the minds of people, there's this thought that if, if something terrible happens, God should be addressing it. If things break down, God should be addressing it. If there's trouble, God should solve that trouble and prove himself to me. And if he, if, if he doesn't and that trouble isn't solved supernaturally by God, then I just decide that uh, there is no God. And that attitude is based on the view that God is a celestial social worker, a great universal divine social worker who's just standing at the ready to insert himself, to jump into every tragedy and straighten it out because it is a tragedy. Because at his heart, essentially, he is a troubleshooter. He's a social worker. That is not true. At his heart, God is relational and he is creator-redeemer. 
So it's only people and nations that have a relationship with him based on the, his understanding of what he is. He is creator, redeemer. So God is motivated more by his paternal love and desire for communion with us than by society's needs. Matthew 23, Jesus is standing over Jerusalem, the city that was about to be destroyed a thousand years before with the angel of the Lord and the drawn sword and David prays. Jesus stands maybe even on that hill and he weeps over Jerusalem and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and desolate. Sounds harsh, but you, do you know who's to blame for that harshness? I wanted to gather your children. You wouldn't listen. You wouldn't let me. You did not want to have relationship with me as creator, redeemer. If, if America succeeds at totally breaking its covenant with God, and as a society, through its leaders, hit the climactic point, and only God knows what that climactic point is, but they hit critical mass where we officially are a nation who has cast off God, broken his covenant, rejected his word, and are not the least bit interested in renewing or repenting, at that moment, it will be said of us what was said of Jerusalem. I wanted to gather you. You refused. You refused. Now look, your house is left to you desolate. Back to the story of David the king. David was the king of Israel, but he wasn't the king of Israel like the other kings were the kings of the nations that surrounded Israel. Those nations were under rulers who treated their domain as their own property. If you study monarchs and the monarchical system, perhaps in Europe, in European history, you'll know that the kings that reigned right up until the end when the monarch, monarchical system began to break and give way to more of a legislative and a parliamentary system, the land and all the people in it belonged to the king. He could give you life, he could take your life away. He could give you land, take it away. He could marry you and he could unmarry you. So, so David was not a king like those guys were kings. David's kingship, his rule, was a stewardship that he was accountable to God for. So David didn't have the right, and here's the heart of the matter. David didn't have the right to calculate his ability as the king by treating Israel as his own resource. And that's what he was doing when he ordered Joab to go out and take a military census. Let's go find out how many troops we have because I'm the king and I have to determine how I'm going to strategize my battles. You see, all of a sudden, God's battles became his battles. God's resources became his resources. 
God who needed to be the one who gave the strategy and the order of how to deal with it when the land was invaded, all of a sudden David now is taking it upon himself. And David was uh, guilty of sinning by stepping into God's domain and taking God's responsibility on himself. You know, it's not easy to walk by faith because you have to trust God instead of relying on the arm of flesh. How many churches and ministries started out on their knees? Oh, Lord, we've got nothing. Families, couples, we've got nothing. Lord, please help us. And miracles start to happen. Provisions happen. But then the growth takes place. And now you're not just a little humble person that's taking initial steps, looking to God for a miracle. Now you are the manager of a great enterprise, a strong family, a growing church, whatever the enterprise may be. And there's a change of mind that takes place. Now all these things are mine. And I have to sit down with my board and talk and calculate. Well, we could do this. We can afford that. We could take out this loan. We can manage things. You know, thank you, Lord, for the beginning. We'll take it from here. That's what David did. Thank you for those great early days, but I've got it. Do you understand now? All right. So David didn't have that right, but he took it. And I want to bring this now to an altar call. In life, we must be careful when dealing with other people that we don't act like sinners who act towards others by calculating their own power. People who don't know Jesus, they decide what kind of relationship they want to have with you based on what their power and ability is. I wish I had time to break that open and, and, and bring it out for you, but you, you're going to have to think about it for yourself. We need to be very careful that we don't go through life like that, that we don't approach our relationship and our responsibility towards other people based on taking an inventory of what our abilities are, our authority, our power, our capacities. Instead, we are to relate to others as God's stewards. Because he alone is the one who owns their life. Whether they're good or whether they're bad, God is the owner. And we are his stewards. So I have to act towards others. Whether they are joining me or whether they're fighting against me, I have to act towards others as God tells me to act towards them. Because God owns the situation. We can't act towards others the way we want and then expect God to come in and clean up the mess. God said, if you didn't want that mess, if you wanted to be able to call on my resource, you should have acted like I was the one who owned the resources in the first place. You shouldn't have treated your family that way. You shouldn't have treated your spouse that way. You shouldn't have treated your friends that way if you didn't want if you didn't want no help from me when the thing blew up in your face. That's putting in plain language. Do you understand what that is all about, what that means? This is why Jesus taught us 
that the greatest and most capable and powerful among you must become your servants. Isn't that what he taught the disciples? I don't care how powerful you are. The most powerful among the disciples become the servant. Do not relate to people because you're smarter than them, more capable than them. Relate to them as I tell you to relate with them. Hallelujah. I don't know. I just, that just sent up a big hallelujah in my mind when I first thought about it. Glory to God. And, you know, the Apostle Paul was extremely cautious about treating people as his property. He had great authority. It's easy when you have great authority. People are looking to you. But he was very careful not to abuse that position and, and step out and be more than just simply a steward and a servant, a steward of God and a servant to them through God. And he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, For we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. We are not coming to you with our own power, wanting you to respond and relate with us and be accountable to us. Be accountable to God. We are his servants. So my closing thought is this. The greater the authority that God gives you in life, the more accountable you are to honor his stewardship through your management of it. There is no greater example of this delicate balance than in marriage and in family. We are obligated to receive the terms of our responsibility to others from God's altar that commissioned us as his ambassadors. When you married your spouse, when you had your children, you are a steward unto God. You know as well as I do, you can't mismanage, neglect, override, force the people in your family. God doesn't honor it. He's never going to honor it. You can't say, well, this is my authority. This is my right. That's like trying to straighten out the bent sword in the sand. The only way Christian marriages get ironed out is you go back to the anvil. Lord, you are the one who holds us together. I as a husband, my wife as, as a wife, we come to you, Lord, and we repent before you. That's what the altar was at the threshing floor. David said, Lord, Israel is yours. We are your stewards. I'm going to leave the rest in your hands. You can think about it. Let it unfold. There are a couple of thoughts for you to consider. I'd like you to stand with me and come and join me around this altar.